I'll echo the sentiments of Brother Brian this morning. We do, it is a beautiful day today. A great blessing we have to come and gather together and worship our Heavenly Father. We serve a good and glorious God that continues to show His goodness each and every day. The Bible says that His mercies are new every morning and that His faithfulness is very great. He shows us His mercy with the just that come from God. But we don't want to stop at receiving the blessings that just here on this earth. We want to receive those that are far, far outweigh the blessings we have in this physical life. Those spiritual blessings. Those blessings that come through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God desires to give those to us. But it requires more than just drawing the breath of life to receive those spiritual blessings that come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has had a way of making obedience to His Word. This morning we're going to talk about, you might say, the first principles of the oracles of God. About how God desires to have a relationship with each and every one of us. But I think it's important that we do that from time to time so that we remember those foundational things. And also because there are many in our hearing that are growing and coming of age and that need to hear the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth about the gospel. This morning, there may be some of you here that have gone through an operation, an operation by a surgeon. Maybe it was a, a pretty big operation. You know, many times when it is entails lots and there is going to be a lot that you have to go through under the knife, the doctor will say, there's some things I need you to do prior to coming to me to receive this operation. You have to get prepared so that I can do this, so that you can live through this operation. Now there's some things that we must do in order to receive this operation that God does upon us. We have to, we have to make steps toward Him. I would like to talk about this operation that God does upon each and every one of us that become His children this morning. And the fact that we need to have faith in that operation. A biblical faith is not one that is blind, that is unfounded. The world at large would like to tell us that that is the case. But in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we see very clearly that our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Our faith is built on the promises that God has in His Word. It's belief based on unchanging truth, truth that transcends time, that will last into eternity. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, further explains faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of our hope is based in past evidence. Things we have found to be true from God in the past. Beginning in the very Garden of Eden, we see that God revealed Himself to His creation. And He expected them to obey not on a blind faith, but based on a knowledge of Him. Look how He dealt with Abraham. He revealed enough of himself to Abraham so that he could have faith. And then he required of him to leave 
the land of Ur where he grew up and sojourned in a far country, a country he had never been to. And later, once again, Abraham proved his faith, faith by offering his only begotten son, the son of promise, Isaac, upon that altar. We see that 600 years later, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, God didn't demand a blind faith. Moses, did, Moses didn't go to the land of Egypt and say, come go with me, let's go. No, he proved that God was who he said he was. And by mir miraculous signs done before Pharaoh and in the midst of all the people, he showed them who God was and the power he had to save them from their oppressors. When they left Egypt, they were far from believing in God. We see time and time again, they worried about what was going to happen to them when they faced a small obstacle before them. But we see that God provided a way each and every time. God proved Himself faithful as they went through the Red Sea and as they stood on the banks of the Jordan River. He had them send in spies to look out, to search out the country, to see what it was like. And God, as they stood on that River Jordan, He gave them a choice. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, and all people, above all people, for all the earth is mine. He said, I've shown myself to you. I've given you every, every reason to believe that I can do what I say I can. And then he tests their faith. He says, by the account of those spies, we're as grasshoppers before these people, but we can do it. I will be your God and you will be my people. All you have to do is take a step in faith. But the ten spies caused the people to waver, caused their faith to fail. And because of that, every person that was of age died in the desert that did not believe in God. God did not require blind faith, but faithful obedience based on the evidence He had provided to them. We find this same pattern over and over throughout the Bible. Jesus proved Himself to His followers and then called for obedient faith. Jesus did not just come to reveal, to show that He could do miracles, to be a sideshow, but those miracles proved that He was who He said He was, that He was the very Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior come to the world to save mankind from His sins. Without miracles, what proof did Christ have that He was the Son of God as He spoke? But time and time again, when He said, I... Arise, your sins are forgiven. What did he do? He had that man get up and walk so that they knew that he had that power. Jesus' miracles were designed to give his disciples, those at that very time, enough faith to believe in him and act on that faith, but also for us here today to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31 says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Just as the children of Israel stood on the bank of the river Jordan, 
every one of us that reaches the age of accountability has a choice to make. Will we believe the evidence for Jesus Christ? Will we believe the power that God extends to us through His blood and put away our sins and follow Him wholly? Or will we try to go about it a different way? A way that man has told us, this is not the way, it's a little different than that, but let me show you. Or will we completely reject Christ altogether? The choice is ours. What are we going to believe? This morning I'd like to look at the evidence that we find in Scripture and how God has chosen to save mankind from His sins and determine what our response should be in faith. The first thing I'd like to notice is that there is a need for salvation. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, it says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither the father the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. We see that each and every person is accountable for what they do. If you're righteous, God will deem you righteous. If you're wicked, then you're wicked, and you'll receive the payment that is due to you. The Apostle Paul, quoting from Psalm 14 and verse 3, tells us plainly that all stand as unrighteous before God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says, For as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Later in that same chapter, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He didn't want to make any, mince any words. He didn't want anybody to misunderstand. We have all sinned and come short of righteousness. So that means that the need for salvation is universal. Each and every person has a debt of sin on their account. And the price of that debt is death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. A death has to occur in order for God to forgive sins. That is where the grace and love of God comes into play. Knowing that we could not be able to live a life perfect and without sin, God set a plan in motion even before He created the heavens and the earth to make a way for us to be redeemed from that debt. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we noticed before, the result of sin is death. And even though He knew the price was extreme and that we could not pay it, He still offered His Son for us. And He knew that the majority of people would not accept that gift, but still He did it. And Christ willingly submitted to His Father, having a choice, but He submitted and laid down His life for the sin of all mankind, showing that greatest love. In John chapter 15 and verse 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the love that Christ showed to mankind. It's fair to say that God's love is beyond compare. 
It's beyond our feeble minds of understanding completely how much He loves us. The Apostle Paul tells us that this gift of Jesus Christ on our behalf, laying down His life for our sins, is known as the gospel, the greatest news ever told to mankind. We find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to to the scriptures. The facts of the gospel are that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, conquering death. There's never been any news any sweeter. There's never been any news that means more to mankind than these three simple facts. These facts are revealed to us by God through His Holy Scriptures. He foretold of them in the Old Testament. He showed them through the miracles, wonders, and signs that were done in the New Testament. And everything in the Bible points to that awesome thing that happened at Calvary that we sung about at least twice this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verses 5 through 8 says, In that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. You know, at the time that the apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, more than half of the people that saw Jesus alive in the flesh after His resurrection were still around. You could go talk to them. You could ask them about what they saw. Your faith could be strengthened by a first-hand account of the Son of God risen from the dead. That would give you faith, wouldn't it? That would give you assurance in the God you serve, wouldn't it? These, fa- these events didn't happen under a rock. They didn't happen in a corner of the world where nobody could see them and then were asked to believe them just because some eloquent speaker says it or because someone we like believes it already. No, it's because of the evidence that God expects us to believe them. You know, the, the facts of the gospel were tried over and over and over to be disproven in the first century. The Jews didn't want to give up their stranglehold on God's people. They wanted it to be false, and they tried every way they could to disprove it. But in the end, they said, how can we deny it? It's done in front of everybody. These eyewitness accounts give us proof without a sh- beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh, and He did raise from the dead the most pivotal point in all of history. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told that if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Then everything that we believe is for naught. But we know for a surety that He did rise from the dead. And just as God was ready to fight the battles for the children of Israel as they went into the promised land, God is ready to fight our battles for us. 
He's already won the war. But it's up to us to submit to Him and become a member of His kingdom. Just as He did with the children of Israel, He requires us to respond in faithful obedience to what He has shown us. Obedience to what? So far, what we've talked about are facts. How do you obey facts? I can't go to Jerusalem and be put on a cross and expect that God is going to save me somehow by doing that. I have sin in my life. If I die, I die. If there's some kind of work I try to, to do, I can't make my wickedness go away. It's on my account. The righteousness of the righteous is upon them, but the wickedness of the wicked is upon them. I'm wicked. I can't do it myself. Remember how Abraham proved his faith. Abraham did things that were not right in the sight of God, but he submitted to God and he was faithful when God told him to do something. He offered Isaac, the, his son of promise, on that altar. And he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. He, was a, he believed that God was still able to bless him as he said he would. Because of that, the Bible says it was accounted unto him for righteousness. He didn't have to pay that debt because somebody else was going to pay it for him because of his righteousness, because of his submission to God's will. That's the same thing that our obedient faith does when we submit to God's plan of salvation. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 says, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Just as Abraham was the father of the faithful, we become a servant of righteousness when we submit to God's plan. So the form of doctrine that the Apostle Paul speaks of here frees us from our sin. It takes that sin debt away. So someone must have died for it. Christ did. And he makes us a servant of righteousness. Because it is a form or picture, if you will, of the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers often refer to the plan that we go through, the plan that God set up as the gospel because it is a picture of that gospel, that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is this form of doctrine? Well, it's revealed to us throughout the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. God wants those that serve Him to be earnest, to, to earnestly desire to find out the truth and to follow Him. He often spoke in, Christ often spoke in parables as He taught the people. We have to have a good and honest heart to search the Scriptures and to find out what God wants us to do to receive salvation. Here we find one part. He that believeth will be saved. We see that belief, with belief, comes salvation. We have to believe that Jesus truly did go through that gospel, that death, burial, and resurrection. We have to believe that He is the Son of God, become flesh. And it also stands to reason, if believing grants us salvation, then if we do not believe, we will not receive that salvation that is promised. 
John chapter 8, verse 24, I said unto you, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. So if I decide I want salvation but I don't want to believe, the Bible says you can't do that. It's not going to work. You will not get salvation. So is that all that is required? As I said before, the student of God must be diligent in searching the Scriptures. We find that there's something else that leads us to salvation in the New Testament. Christ taught, as did His followers, that repentance was required for, to be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So again, we find another requirement for salvation. Repentance leads to salvation. So if we believe but not repent, will we be saved? No. We must do both. So we find Jesus clearly tells us, unless we repent, we will perish. So is that all? As we study the Bible, we find that there is more to it. We find that the Bible gives us another condition to realize the blessings of God's grace. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Again, we see the very same equation. With confession comes salvation. Without it, there is no salvation. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. It's very simple. God puts it straightforward to us if we are earnest and diligent in seeking Him. What else does the Bible say? There's one more that we're told. 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Once again, the very same thing. With baptism comes salvation. For some reason, this seems to be the sticking point with much of the religious world today. They said, we can do it without baptism. Just like the others, God says, no, you can't. You've got to have it all. John chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Very plainly, you've got to have it all. If you don't have it all, you don't have anything. As we survey the New Testament, we find that that's the entirety of the plan of salvation. When we do these simple acts of obedience, then we become a child of God. And we receive the blessings that in spiritual places come only through Christ Jesus. They complete the picture, if you will, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7. Not, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, 
we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Can't you see the picture of the gospel right there? Through the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we die to our sins in, ba in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life when we repent and do those things that we've talked about today. It's very simple. It's very plain. It just takes an honest heart to look into them. You know, there were many in the first century that decided, you know, that's not enough. That's too simple. That's too easy. The Jews thought, you know, we've been doing this for 1,500 years. It's so easy for the Gentiles. They've got to do something else. They've got to get circumcised. They've got to obey portions, if not all, of the law of Moses. And then they can be counted children of God. The Apostle Paul, a very devout Jew said, no, that is not the case. When you do that, you pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's no longer the gospel, but something else. And he said, if you do that, you will be accursed. No matter who you are, if you're an apostle, or if you're an angel sent from heaven, and you say something that's not been revealed already, you will be accursed. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. There's no other way. There's nothing else that saves us except for the simple facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God wants us to submit to it. He wants us to wholeheartedly step out in faith and do those actions, however simple they may be. Remember from Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of salvation. Nothing else. We've seen the facts of the gospel in the form of doctrine that the Bible says we're to obey. Now let's see if we understand it correctly. Because the beauty of the Scripture is it doesn't just tell us what to do, then it shows us how people accomplished what it told us to do in the past. It gives us proof whether or not we understand things correctly. Let's go to the very first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. You know, the apostle Peter and the, the apostles were there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and they were able to speak miraculously in tongues, a sign that what they were about to say truly came from God the Father. And as they did that, they spoke about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they told people there that had seen that very, those very occurrences. The, they had seen Christ nailed to the cross. They had probably walked by and seen people laughing and mocking at Him. They saw the Roman soldier pierce His side. They saw Him taken down. But then they saw Him after the fact, that He was raised from the dead. So they were convinced of the evidence but they didn't know what to do with that evidence. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified 
and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And those with a good and honest heart realized that was truth. There were many there that deflected that, that would not allow that to penetrate their hearts. But those that had a good and honest heart knew that the apostles were speaking truth. They knew that they had seen the very things they were talking about. Verse 14 tells us that it is Peter preaching, and, it te- and he also goes into the evidences in the old law, because these were Jews that he was talking to. And he goes back to the prophet Joel, and he tells them, these things that were prophesied of in Joel, these are the things that you're seeing coming true today. So they had no excuse not to believe. In verses 25 through 36, he provides more evidence that Christ is the promised Messiah. He leans on David. He leans on the Psalms and says, These are the things that have been prophesied of, and this is the very Christ. He tells them the facts of the gospel, and he provides irrefutable evidence. And now he lays it at their feet and says, What are you going to do? And these people understand that there's something that must be done. Acts 2 and 37 Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We understand. We we hear loud and clear what you're telling us. Now what must we do? And he tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So he said, repent and be baptized and you'll have the remission of sins. We see three of those things that we talked about earlier. Three of those steps. Does that mean they didn't have to do the rest? I believe they did the rest. And I believe the scripture bears out the fact that they did. But let's not assume anything. Let's leave it as it is. We see specifically stated that they repented. They were to repent. They were to be baptized. And with that they would receive salvation for their sins. Now let's go to another conversion example. And let's see if additional condi- the other conditions are met. Or maybe we misunderstood when we looked at them earlier. We're going to look at this more in depth this evening, so I invite you to come back tonight as we look at Acts chapter 8. But we're going to look at just a, a part of that chapter at this point. We're going to look at Ethio- the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip as God sent him to teach the gospel to him. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, it says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to the chariot. And Philip ran thither unto him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and and like a lamb but dumb before his shears, so opened he not his mouth. In, the, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. 
And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. What did Philip teach? The eunuch was reading about Isaiah the prophecy of the coming Messiah and how he would endure things, that he would not be a fair person, that people would look to him and look, you know, that's a man of stature, that we can follow that guy, but that he had, there was no reason to follow him except for the fact that he submitted to the will of the Father. And he said, who is this man, who is he talking about? Is it him or someone else? The Bible says that he began at that scripture and taught him Jesus. So what does teaching Jesus involve? Evidently, it involves baptism. Because after he taught him Jesus, the, the Ethiopian eunuch coming by a body of water said, Here's water. What hinders me from obeying the plan of salvation? Evidently, there was something he had not done. He hadn't proclaimed his faith in Christ Jesus. He said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And both of them went down and he was baptized. And the eunuch rose up out of that water rejoicing. So we're told that he believed, he confessed, and he was baptized. We're not specifically told that he had salvation. But it stands to reason that he was taught that because he rejoiced. He was a man that served God, that desired to, to earnestly serve God. He was not, he was evidently a proselyte Jew that had traveled many, many miles to go to Jerusalem to worship. But he realized there was something lacking. And when he was taught the truth of the gospel, he submitted to it. And he believed that he had salvation. So here specifically taught, we see belief, confession, and baptism. Let's look at one more. This is the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. We find this in Acts chapter 22. We find it in three places in the book of Acts, but I'd like to look specifically at Acts chapter 22. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of the light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me, and stood, and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen thee, and thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. 
For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In another account, in Acts chapter 9, we're told, And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. In verse 11 of Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul prayed and fasted as he waited for three days. So what do we learn about his conversion? We see that he had a miraculous encounter with Christ including seeing a bright light, so bright that it caused blindness to set upon him. He spoke with Jesus Christ himself. He had his sight returned to him miraculously. And he was presented with a mountain of evidence. And it was upon that evidence that he was given the opportunity to make a choice, to choose to follow God or not. I'm sure he had heard about the crucifixion. He'd been persecuting people that believed in it. So he'd heard about the death. He'd heard people, I'm sure, talk about the fact that Jesus was risen from the grave because that's what Christianity was all about. And he calls Jesus Lord on the road to Damascus. But we don't have a record of him specifically confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God like we do the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He prays and fasts and doesn't drink anything for three days. Signs of one that is penitent, that realizes there's got to be a change in my life or I am not going to be blessed by God. But the Bible doesn't specifically say that he repents. So specifically we find that baptism led to salvation. So what have we done in these three short accounts? What have we found we found that different, at different times, different steps in, the, in salvation were recorded. But that doesn't mean they didn't all submit to the entire plan of salvation. I remind you what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere... And in every church, the good news of Jesus Christ was taught the same everywhere people went. And in order to submit to that gospel, it was, it was obeyed in the same way everywhere that people went. It stands to reason that the death, burial, and resurrection was preached and also the entire plan of salvation. We see evidence of it, evidences of it in every account in acts of, the, of conversions, but ne not necessarily spelled out. You know, there's people from different groups that call themselves Christians that say, I'm a Christian, but I don't have to, or I didn't have to. There's ones that say that you don't have to believe. They will baptize someone without that infant ever submitting to believing, confessing, or repenting. An infant cannot do those things. And it runs again. They will pick and choose parts of this plan and say, we don't have to do that. But the one they pick on the most is baptism. 
They say, we can take the rest of it, but we can't stomach baptism for whatever reason. Satan has done a good job in convincing people that submitting to part is enough. But notice the, the one thing that was consistent each and every account throughout the book of Acts, not only in these three, but throughout the book of Acts, that we had to submit. We had to go on the operating table. We had to submit to the operation of God that is performed on us when we submit to Him in baptism. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, "...buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead." And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Why would you sell yourself short? Why would you stop short of what the Bible commands us? Very plainly, very systematically, very similarly to eat on each and every step. If you do this, you will be saved. If you do not, you will not be. It's not a matter of following men but it's a matter of submitting to God. So the moment of truth is set before each and every one of us today. I believe we have compiled the facts. We haven't looked at every single conversion account in the book of Acts, but I, I commend you to do that. Go through that study yourself and prove these things to be true in your mind. The evidence is overwhelming. God has a simple plan for us, but it's up to us to submit to it. This morning, are you on the bank of the River Jordan? Have you made that decision to follow Christ? If you have not, why not? If you understand the teaching this morning, there's no reason not to submit to it. Not because I spoke it, but because that's what God says. And that's what's required by God of those that want to be His children. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 7 says, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And we, He will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. God is a good God. And He wants to give us every good and perfect gift but He leaves it up to us to choose to receive them. This morning I beg of you, if you're not a child of God, become one today. Call on His name through baptism. As Ananias commanded Saul of Tarsus, in Damas as, as he came in to Damascus, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The lesson is yours this morning. Come as we stand and sing the song of invitation.